Our text uh, this morning is not going to be terribly long, just the first 11 chapters of Exodus chapter 33. And I think it deals with something really remarkable. It deals with a dynamic that's going to continue this Sunday and then the next Sunday that we're in the book of Exodus. Dealing with just sort of that question, where do you go from here? Let's remind ourselves, the people of Israel have just experienced a terrible self-inflicted trauma. The self-inflicted trauma was this whole mess with the golden calf. This idol made of gold, which they in a very public and demonstrative way uh, praised it as the God that brought them out of Egypt. And and there was following that a, a some show of repentance on behalf of the people of Israel, there was some sense of judgment because there were 3,000 hardened, defiant uh, rebels who, who were killed on that day. But after all of that, after all of that trauma, you just sort of left with this question, well, where do we go from here? And I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I suppose you have in some area or another of your life. Something bad happens. And maybe you've done it to yourself. Maybe not. But then where do you go from here and These next two studies that we do in the book of Exodus, it's really going to help answer that. Look at it here. Verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land, which I swore to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it and I will send my angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. That's remarkable, isn't it? That's remarkable because, first of all, it starts out with some good news. Look at the good news right there in verse 1. Depart and go up from here to the land to your descendants. I will give it. You see, somebody might have had reason to believe that after the sin of the golden calf, which was horrible, But they might have reason to believe that after the sin of the golden calf, God would have taken back his promise to give the land of Canaan to the people of Israel. And who would have blamed him if he would have? Let that golden calf lead you into the land of Canaan, uh, Israel. See how that works out for you. As for you guys, I'm done with you. I'm not going to wipe you out. I'm not going to judge you, but I'm done with you. I'm finished with you. But God said, no, no, the promised land is still yours. I haven't fallen back on any of those promises. I promise it to Abraham. I promise it to Isaac. I promise it to Jacob. And you are their descendants here. This is for you. And that's really a show of God's grace. Okay, so one very good thing. Great. The promised land, it's still yours. Secondly, verse 2, and I will send my angel before you and will drive out the Canaanite. Look, I'm going to send some help along with the way. I'm going to send an angel there for you. You see, after the sin of the golden calf, God did not deny Israel the blessing or the grace of his protection. He promised to be with them in some way. I will send my angel to fight with them in the promised land. Now, friends, right here, starting at verse two, it gets a little bit complicated. And I hope I can explain this well enough. As I look down at my Bible, which, by the way, is a new King James version Bible. I don't think it's the only good translation out there, but the one that I favor for a few different reasons. If you want to know why, talk to me afterwards or something like that. I'm happy to explain it to you. 
But anyway, here we are in verse two of my Bible when it says, and I will send my angel. Okay, I look at those words and my is capitalized. You know why my is capital? Because it's God speaking. But by the way, I just want to inform you that the ancient manuscripts for both the Old Testament and New Testament didn't have capital letters and small letters. Back then, they wrote in something like all capital letters. So when we capitalize in the Bible, it, you know, it's, it's the translator helping us. Okay, but it makes sense. My angel, my capitalized because God is speaking. But if you notice then, angel in the New King's Version, that is also capitalized. Now, why would angel be capitalized? Because sometimes in the Bible and previously in the book of Exodus, when God has described the angel of his presence, it seems to be a manifestation of who he is. It's God himself with the people. If you were to go back, and I'm not asking you to turn back there, but back in Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 23, it seems to describe God being with them, the angel that has my name in him, which is a way of describing God himself. There's a passage in Isaiah 63, verse 9, that I'll just read it to you. It looks back at the Exodus and it says this. In all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. Okay, now, so there's an angelic presence that's actually a manifestation of God himself. Very possibly Jesus Christ himself before he ever appeared as a baby in Bethlehem there with the people of Israel. But then there's also a such thing as it's kind of a weird phrase to use, but I'll, I'll use it. Just sort of a generic angel. An angel angel. Okay, I think here in verse 2, it's speaking about just an angel angel. Why? Well, because if you look at verse 3, look at it there with me. It says, I will not go up in your midst. In other words, God says, I'll send an angel. There's an angel I'll send with you. Yeah, I'll, I'll go across and maybe get some flunky angel off the choirs of heaven or something like that. I'll send him with you. That's fine. I'm not going to leave you without any protection. I'm not going to leave you without any, you know, support from above. No, you'll have it. But me, God says, I'm not going to go with you. No, not me. There will be something lacking in my divine presence with you. I'm not going to abandon you completely, but neither am I going to give myself to you unreservedly. It's almost as if God said this. He says, I'm not going to get so close to you because I just might wipe you out along the way if you pull one of those golden calf things again. I mean, really, that's what he's saying. Look at what he says. I'll just read it to you. He goes, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst lest I consume you on the way for you're a stiff necked people. Okay, so do you notice what God says here after the first three chapters, first three verses? Track along with this. Okay, Israel, I haven't taken back the promise of the promised land. It's all yours. Go on to Canaan. And I'll even send an angel along the way to help you out to make sure you get there. But I, at least in my immediate powerful presence, I will not go with you. Now, how does that sound to you? How did it sound to Israel? You could say that this was a challenge to Moses and to the people of Israel as a whole. God told them they could have the promised land, but he would not remain with them in a close and personal way. Now, if they said, fine, God, that's great. Because all we want is the land. 
Because all we want is a little bit of protection along the way. As long as you give us that, great. But I think what God wanted to see from Israel right here, maybe a bit of a test from the Lord. Not maybe, I think it is. I think it's a test from the Lord to Israel saying, do you want me? Do you want me? Or or do you just want the land? Do you just want the good things I can give you? Or do you just want a little bit of help along the way? Friends, the, the text that we have in front of us this morning, it deals with things that are actually deeply spiritual. You know, sometimes we read the Bible and it speaks to us in very practical aspects of our life, and we're very happy about that. We're happy to receive the practical instruction from the Bible on on how we should live our life. But there's other times when the Bible speaks to us in a very spiritual way. And friends, I I know that when I look out across this room, there's people who are coming from all different sort of spiritual backgrounds. And where you're at right now is different places in, in, in what God is doing in your life and what he has done in the past. But but I just want to use this as a check, as an analysis, as a measuring line for your life to say simply, do you want the Lord in your life? Or are you happy with just with the good things that he gives you? Okay, God, if you give me a nice house, if you give me a good job, if you give me a happy family life, if you give me those things, and if you'll be with me a little bit every day, great, God, that's all I want from you. That's basically what he offered to Israel. And God sort of pushed this out on the table. Israel, do you want this? Israel, will you be happy with that arrangement? Or will there be something that awakens in your soul that says, Lord, unless we have you in the fullest measure, all that other stuff is empty. God was seeing if Israel had any heart for him. Not just the good things that he gives, not just the emblem of his presence, but do you want me? and all those other things. A good life. We have a good life here in Santa Barbara, don't we? We're blessed by God. Some of you thought it was a weather crisis because it was a little foggy on the the way to to church this morning. Oh, we're so blessed. God's given us so much. And we're grateful for it. It's okay, Lord, we live in such a beautiful place. And my family's doing good. And the business is going okay. And, and I, I'm, I'm just happy in life. And I know you're with me. That's great. Friends, if that will satisfy your soul, I don't think you're reaching deep enough. I, I think there's something that needs to be awakened in your heart and mind. It says, Jesus, I want you, and I want you in the fullness. I want you in the greatest measure possible. You see, in truth, all those other things that we can have we, uh, without the reality of God's presence in our life are going to sh- uh, come up short in some way. You can have Canaan. You can have your land. You can have your freedom. You can have your riches. You can have all of that. But there's a sense in which it's going to come up empty without the reality of God's presence. And God was testing Israel now to see if they felt that need. It's strange. I've thrown out these words here. My heart is behind them and the text explains this to us. But these are things that are different. I pray the Holy Spirit awakens your heart to some of these things right here, right now. So how were the people going to react? I imagine 
people moving up on the edge of their seat to see how Israel's going to react to all this. Look at it right here, verse 4. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. Well, I'm just going to stop right there. Bad news? How could it be bad news to hear that you're going to get Canaan? How could it be bad news to hear that God's going to send some emissary of his presence? That's good news, isn't it? No, why was it bad news? Because God said, I'm going to keep my distance from you. Let's start again here, verse 4. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, you are stiff-necked people. I would have come up to your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Friends, it's really remarkable. Verse 4 says that they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. This was a wonderful response to Israel. They heard this news. You can have Canaan. You can have something of my presence, but I'm going to keep distant from you. And they said, that's bad news. Because, Lord, what good is Canaan if you're not there with us in a close way? What, what, what good is to have a little bit of angelic bodyguard along the way if you're not going to be there with us in a beautiful and powerful way? You see, they mourned the potential loss of God's close presence. If there's anything just sort of aching in my heart, I just think that I, I just wish, I long, I pray that this would be reawakened in the church today. Honestly, lives of compromise that Christians live, where they love the Lord, they, look, they, they're saved, they're going to heaven, but their lives are lived at a low compromising level. There's no real passion for Jesus Christ. Now, why? Well, look, I, I got to say one of the great things, and I'm not going to say it's the only thing, but one of the great things involved, there's probably not much passion for God's presence. Because those things, those those dozen little compromises that we wink at in our life, don't you think they push out any great close sense of the presence of the Lord in our life? But if there's no mourning of that loss, it's like, well, whatever, man, I got my house, I got Canaan, I got whatever. You see, there's something not fitting right in the way God wants us to live. So what did they do is beautiful. Take off the, the ornaments. This isn't time for business as usual. No, no, no. Um, we, we, we can't go on as if everything is the same. They mourned here. Their mourning was evidence of repentance. And not just mourning. It wasn't just feel bad. I, I, I think it would be funny if the text said something like this. And they mourned but kept their ornaments. You know, sometimes we're just content to feel bad in our heart, but not do anything with our life. And the expression that they had was to say, you know what, I can't go on living this decorated life as before. I go to acknowledge something's wrong, something's missing, something's failing. This ornament, this one thing that sparkled so nice that I thought was so wonderful, forget it. I don't need it. I don't want it. In some strange way, it might be getting in the way between me and the Lord. And if it does, cast it off. Lord, I just want your presence. They needed this because, as God says in verse 5, you're a stiff-necked people. You're stubborn. You're like that donkey or ox. You know, God's 
spoken agricultural metaphors to Israel. You're like that donkey or ox that won't bend its neck to my work. You got a stiff neck. And they responded, verse 6 says, So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. The people displayed their repentance and their mourning by not wearing their ornaments. They knew it was no time for decorating the external things. It was a time for bringing the heart right with God. That's a beautiful thing, friends. I see two huge things that Israel's already done. Number one, they, they, there was an evidence of their need. Lord, we want you. Lord, it's bad news to us if we get Canaan, if we get some emblem of your presence, but we don't get you. That's bad news to us. It's not good news. That's one. They mourned. Then secondly, they, they repented. Get rid of the ornaments. Let me read you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, the people who are concerned about revival in a true sense are not just out for a little bit of excitement or interest or some happiness or phenomena or coming with an attitude of something marvelous is going to happen and now we're going to have a great good time. That is now how they think about it at all. That is not how they think about it at all. And if you, my dear friends, are simply thinking about meetings and excitement and something wonderful, you have not begun to understand this matter. Why do I share that quote from Lloyd-Jones? Because to me, it speaks to me something very pointedly about the true nature of revival and what it is for people to get right with God. It's not just excitement. It's not just a rush of Yahoo. Now, that's involved in it. I don't want to ask is, let's have revival and everybody be depressed as absolutely possible. But what I'm just saying is so often the gateway to true revival is repentance. Is a mourning. It's saying, Lord, it stinks the way it's been. God, would you move in my heart and the hearts of others to just change this? I'm not just looking for an excitement. I'm looking for you. Now, by the way, Exodus chapter 35 later on will show how the ornaments that they stripped themselves of, they were used in the building of the tabernacle. God said, I'll take these things. These things that you thought were in the way, I'm going to use them on the way for my work for you. Verse 7. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. Wasn't that beautiful? In the midst of this really wonderful news in Israel. Friends, I I don't know how many days. Maybe it was a couple of weeks. I can't tell you for sure. But in some fairly short time, from the golden calf to this, it's been a remarkable transformation. I think that's wonderful. I'll say this. If you were dancing around a golden calf last night, this morning you can have your heart awakened to God. Don't think like God has to put you on some probationary period. Right now you can have it changed. Right now your life can be transformed. Right now you can say, yes, Jesus, forget about that stuff. I want what you have for me. And you see it awakening here in verse 7, where Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp. And he called it a tabernacle of meeting. You see, they hadn't built the tabernacle yet. They hadn't made that tent. That's later on in the book of Exodus. They hadn't built it yet. So you know what Moses says? Because I'm going to make my tent a tabernacle of meeting. It's almost like this. They say, well, we haven't built the church yet. My house is the church. Come on over. Let's worship God. I'm going to seek the Lord. 
As long as I'm concerned, my home, my tent is a sacred place to God. Let's seek him there together. And it's beautiful. It's a powerful thing. And it's not something that Moses organized or planned or strategized. He sought God. Moses said, I'm going to seek God. I'm going to make my home like a tabernacle or a church. And he sought God radically and spontaneously. And when he did that, other people noticed and they followed. So they would follow Moses out. Moses says, you know what? Just to get a little bit of space, a little bit of separation, I'm going to go. I'm going to leave out of the camp. I don't know where you guys are at, but my heart's hungering after the Lord. Let's set that tent up out there, and I'm going to go and seek the Lord out there. That's what it says in verse 7. Everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now, look, there's another reason why Moses set that tabernacle outside the camp, because he wanted to make a clear dividing line for those who were willing to separate and come and join in this. You see, it meant that everyone who wanted to seek the Lord had to separate in some sense. And you can assume that not everybody wanted to do this. Some people refused. They never separated. They said, listen, if, if seeking the Lord means going all the way out to Moses' tent, I'm not interested. I don't want to separate from anybody else in any other way. But friends, I just have to say that when God's spirit begins to deal in the heart of a man or a woman, and they're really awakened to seeking God and to receiving from him in a deeper way. They're saying, Lord, Canaan isn't enough. An emblem of your presence is enough. I need you. There's going to be some element of separation in that. And I can't describe what that element's going to look like. I really can't. But I'll just say there's going to be some element of separation because not everybody around you is going to be into that. Not everybody around is going to go, hey, great, that's wonderful. You're seeking the Lord like you never have before. Hey, isn't it great? You're dissatisfied with just the blessings of God, and you want God himself. That's not going to sound like such a sweet tune to everybody. And if you're absolutely unwilling to have any element of separation, there's only so far you can go with the Lord. Let me say that again. If you're absolutely unwilling to have any element of separation, there's only so far that you can go with the Lord. Man, this this is difficult for many people, is it not? I know at times it's difficult for me. I hope I'm not the only one in the room that's like this. You, you don't want to separate yourself or make yourself feel, well, I'm spiritual and you guys. And, well, okay, the answer to that is don't do it in a stupid holier-than-thou Start speaking King James English or being weird kind of thing. You know, avast, awayeth from me, you sinner. You know, that, or, or you know, that's kind of old generational weirdness. How about our modern generation? You don't have to be weird about it, but you just have to be true about it. I'm seeking the Lord in a special way. I'd be delighted if others came with me, but I'm going no matter what, because the Lord is more precious to me. Sometimes I just find this dynamic in me, and I don't know, maybe and sometimes it's in other people too. You almost feel like you're in junior high all over again. And it's like, please, won't everybody like me? And you say, we're grown-ups, aren't we? Haven't we gotten over that? Haven't we realized that seeking the Lord means in some way, in some sense, that there just may be some separation between us and other people or other things? But it's worth it. Look at it here in verse 8. 
So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing on the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. Isn't that amazing? You know, God is moving among the congregation of Israel even after the disaster of the golden idol. The golden idol's gone. It's crushed. They drank it. It was powdered in their drink. It's gone. It's finished. The people now, Lord, we want you. We just don't want your blessings. We just don't want an emblem of your presence. We want you. And then the next step, Moses says, okay, great. I'm going to set my tent outside of the camp, and I'm going to worship there. Moses does that. And as he says, God has such a blessing upon it that it says that whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, all the people rose. Can you imagine that? Moses like, well, I'm going to go out to the tabernacle, worship the Lord. He starts walking that way. Everybody starts standing around him. Now, I, I don't believe they're standing just primarily in reverence to Moses. Because notice what it says here in verse 8, or excuse me, verse 9. It says, the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. Do you remember what we're talking about with the pillar of cloud? I wish I knew what it, what it meant, what, what it really described. The uh, Hebrew there supposedly, I mean, look, I'm no Hebrew scholar. I can't read Hebrew. I just read books from guys who can. But, but according to some Hebrew scholars, the, the idea of, of the pillar there just means a standing thing. We don't know exactly what it looked like. But imagine some kind of pillar, some kind of standing thing right there arising from Moses. It's the emblem of the presence of God, the glorious presence of God. The, the pillar of cloud. And there's this thing that just manifests God's presence, his glory, his, his magnificence right there, standing right there at the door of Moses' tent. Can you imagine what a thrill Moses must have felt to see that there? The glory of God has come upon my house. The glory of God is evident. And that's why the people stood. They stood because they saw the pillar of clouds standing right there. God actually came there to meet Moses. And it was demonstrated by the pillar of cloud. That pillar of cloud kind of became like the flag of royalty. Look, I don't know much about royal customs. But isn't that the palace that if the king or somebody's there that they fly a special flag, something like that? I remember being down at Coronado Island with my sister. And uh, we were going to take the, uh, the, the ferry just over from... And, the, and there's a big admiral's house there. And she was explaining to me, oh, yeah, they fly this particular... I asked her, what's up with that flag on top of that house? Because it looked a little unusual. She said, well, they fly that flag when the admiral's there. It's, it's to indicate that he's present right there. Well, this pillar of cloud was like that kind of flag, that kind of emma. God's here. Everybody knows that I want to mark out my presence. And everyone saw this pillar of cloud... And they came to the tent of Moses. They knew that Moses worshipped and met God there. They knew God had not abandoned them in his special presence. Verse 9 says that the Lord talked with Moses. Now, I, I don't know all that he said. Some of it's in the biblical text. But I'm sure a lot of it was just strength and comfort and fellowship with God. Don't think that it was all business. Okay, like business meeting with Moses. Okay, God says to Moses, okay, you got to do this and this and this. Here's the agenda. Go back and get it done and report back to me. I'm sure there was some aspect of what to do and how to do it. 
But don't you think a lot of it was just the sweetness of fellowship and communion with God? The, the sweetness of being in the presence of God? Do you ever be around people that you just like to be around them? You don't even have to say a whole lot, even though the conversation you have is wonderful. But there's just something wonderful about being around that person, being in their very presence. Do you know God is like that if you only knew him that well? If you knew God well and if you say, I just like being around you. I just like focusing my mind and my heart to be in your particular presence. And when the people saw that, verse 10 says that all the people rose and worshipped. There was something about what Moses had that made other people want to worship God. All right, let's finish it up here. Verse 11. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp. But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. The Lord spoke to Moses face to face, just like a man speaks to his friend. Now, friends, nobody should get stumbled by this Hebraic uh, phrase, this this uh, figure of speech face to face. What that simply means is clear and plain and unhindered communication. Uh, uh, God spoke to other people in dreams or in visions or in shadows, so to speak, not to Moses, clear as a bell. It doesn't mean that Moses actually saw the face of God the Father, because the Bible tells us that no man has seen God at any time, speaking of the glory of God the Father. No, no, that's not it at all. But I tell you, Moses was going to see as much of the presence of the Lord as a man could possibly see. And that's for the next time that we're in the book of Genesis, of Exodus. And friends, here's kind of the deal. You know, next week is Palm Sunday. I can't wait to talk about receive. And then we got restored, you know, Easter Sunday. That's great. So it's going to be, what, about three weeks or something? Four weeks? No, you do the math. It's going to be a few weeks until we're back here in the book. But when we get back in Exodus, it's going to be so wonderful to see this. But the, the camera kind of pans back, and we're very encouraged, are we not? We're very encouraged to see what God is doing among Israel. We see that Israel, Israel had a recognition of their need for God. They wanted his presence. Secondly, they were willing to repent in whatever way God told them to do. For them, it involved laying down the ornaments. They repented. And then number three, they sought after God as he revealed himself. The good news I have for you is that we don't have, for an example, this morning, Moses. I mean, Moses is an example, but he's not the best example. It's Jesus himself. What Jesus did for us is so far greater than what Moses could ever do or think for us. That we say, Jesus, would you be that one greater than Moses for us? And would you connect us to the very presence of God? I hope your heart awakens for that and that you're willing to lay aside anything that would hinder you, any ornaments, so to speak, and that you would just worship him. You would enjoy something of his presence. Father, that's my prayer. I thank you for these people, Lord, how how they do love you, Lord, and how each one of us needs this good, this good and strong truth from your word. So we simply ask, Lord, that however you have wanted to stir our hearts, that you would cement it. I pray, God, you'd show each individual some 
some ornament, so to speak, that they need to lay aside. That you'd awaken a greater hunger for you, so much greater than their blessings. That you'd give us truly, Lord, a, a spirit of worship before you. Receive it, Lord, and just, just move, transform our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.